we come today to look at the fourth of the minor prophets in this series, the book of Obadiah. We've teased around. Some of you have sent me commentaries to help me prepare. Some folks directed me to YouTube sermons that I could look at to be ready. We've teased about, can you spell it? Can you say it? You certainly can't say it three times fast. Can you find it? We just don't spend much time in the shortest book of the Old Testament, okay? Uh, the other four short books of the Bible are in the New Testament. The book of Obadiah is the shortest in the Old Testament, and it's the fourth shortest in that series of five short books. A little over 400 Hebrew words in uh, the book of Obadiah. One commentator uh, writing about this, I read him, and he said, to help your people find Obadiah, tell them to go to Ezekiel and turn right. Well, that'll get you there, but that's a long way, okay? We were next door to it last week. Go to Amos and turn right. You'll be there, okay? Or the next of the minor prophets is Jonah. Go to Jonah and turn left. Either one will get you there, but I want you to go there with me, and we're going to look at just one verse uh, today. Uh, as we stand together and share together, uh, I'll be looking at the entire book as we go through today, so I hope you keep your Bibles open, keep your notes available, uh, or note-taking available. And I remind you, there are Bibles in the pew. Uh, that I'm using the King James Version, so they'll be a little different, but that's uh, helpful sometimes to have the comparison of the two, two versions as well. But let me invite you, if you would, to turn to Obadiah 18. I didn't say a chapter because there's no need for a chapter. It's just, it's one chapter. Verse 18, if you would stand with me and let's read that uh, one verse today. I've chosen this one verse because I think it helps us to get the setting and the tone and the purpose of the book of Obadiah just in that one verse. Obadiah 1, uh, or, or Obadiah 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire. Remember that name, Jacob. And the house of Joseph, a flame. As you try to understand Obadiah, you've got to go back to your Old Testament knowledge and go back to the book of Genesis and remember that there was a man named Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, his son Isaac, and then Isaac gave birth to twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is named here. And then Jacob had 12 sons and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph, of course, is one of those sons. So uh, that gives you a little bit of an understanding of uh, what we're talking about here, the people of God, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. They're going to become a fire and a flame. And then the house of Esau, the firstborn of uh, Jacob, of uh, Israel, and the uh, uh, twin brother of Jacob. And you remember when the time of the birth of those twins took place, there was struggle going on at the very uh, time of birth. And it continued, as you remember the book of Genesis, throughout their uh, lifetimes. And now we're going to find out today the struggle between the Israelites and the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, uh, continued for several hundred years. And Obadiah has the privilege of prophesying the fact that that conflict is going to end because the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, are going to be destroyed. And we find that here in this verse. The Jewish people, Jacob and Joseph, and all the other uh, descendants of that family are going to be a fire and a flame against the house of Esau and the Edomites uh, for stubble. They shall kindle in them and devour them. The prophecy of the destruction 
of the descendants of Esau, the nation of Edom. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. Again, that's the Edomites. Why? For the Lord hath spoken it. Something in the nature and the character of the life uh, and the way of living of those Edomites came to the attention of God and God determined this is it no more. And he caused them to be destroyed and removed from the earth, removed from history essentially. And this verse kind of helps to explain that. Thank you. If you would not please be seated. Several things I want to share with you today is a lot of background uh, material and information that will be helpful to you in understanding the book of Obadiah. First of all, as you, we've just seen, Obadiah wrote 21 verses, the fourth shortest uh, book in the Bible, the, the shortest book of the Old Testament. And he addressed those verses essentially to the descendants of Esau, the nation of Edom, if you get your map and look sometime, the nation of Edom is at the base of the Dead Sea, far south of uh, the Holy Land of Palestine. Uh, but it's southeast and borders the, one of the southern uh, tribes of uh, Israel, Judah. Uh, of course, this, Judah, the uh, country, the uh, tribe in which the city of Jerusalem was located. We'll see all of those names mentioned as we go through our study today. But a neighboring tribe, a neighboring nation of Judah is the nation of Edah, the descendants of Esau. Conflict was in place between Jacob, who's the father of the nation of Israel. Remember his name was changed to Israel and his 10 sons become, his 12 sons become the 12 tribes. Uh, and then the, the, the conflict was between Jacob and Esau from birth all the way through their lives and it continued for generation after generation after generation. Uh, and uh, Isaiah, I mean, Obadiah acknowledges that and addresses that and declares God's judgment upon this nation of uh, Edom, the descendants of Esau, for their hostility. Sometimes aggressive hostility against the Jewish people, most of the time just supporting other enemies of Israel or maybe even worse, sitting back and smiling when Israel suffered over and over and over again. They could have stepped in to help. They could have gotten involved. They could have shown friendship and kinship. If you think about it, Jacob and Esau brothers, their descendants then would be cousins, distant cousins, their family. And family could have done something to assist family, but instead of doing it, they were happy with the the way things were for them, and they were happy with what was happening to their cousins, uh, the nation of Israel. And God finally draw uh, an end into a conclusion to that and, and uh, uh, uses Obadiah to declare this judgment. And history records that that judgment uh, finally took place. I'll go ahead and give you a little bit more of the history. Uh, shortly after Obadiah preached this message of the destruction of Edom, uh, foreign nations, including and involving some of the Jewish people themselves, came against Edom, and e Edom was basically destroyed and annihilated and removed from the face of the earth, except for a small handful of the Edomites who moved even closer to the border of Judah and settled there for several centuries and uh, became a people known as the I-Edumians, I-D-U-E-M-A-N-S, instead of Edomites. But they were all a part of those same descendants, and from the Idumeans comes a family 
with the family name of Herod. And one of those Herods is the one who uh, made the decree at the birth of Christ to uh, destroy, to kill all of the young uh, babies who had been born during that period of time with an attempt to destroy Christ, to destroy the Messiah, the one he felt was a threat to his own throne. So that hostility from Jacob and Esau at birth through their lives, through succeeding generations continued all the way down even to the time of Christ. But shortly after the time of Christ, the Roman uh, armies and, and other uh, outside forces uh, overthrew the Idumeans, removed them, destroyed them, and they basically have been removed from history. They cannot be identified as a nation or a people any longer. Now you probably say, I don't know much about Edom. I don't know much about Obadiah, but let me tell you, you may know more than you think. You've heard in the news often of Jordan. Well, the geographical territory that made up Edom is a part of Jordan today, okay? So you kind of know where it is. That tells you something. Uh, not, all of Jordan doesn't make up Edom, uh, what was once Edom, but a portion of uh, Jordan covers that territory. Also, there are a couple of cities that you've heard of in history and even in modern times that were a part of Edom centuries ago and still are known today, and that's the cities of Petra, P-E-T-R-A, and also Basra. And I know especially Basra, we hear when there's conflict over in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Jewish people, quite often it originates in Basra, or retaliation goes back against Basra, or some uh, connection, and that name is in the news, and you've heard it. You may say, well, yeah, I've heard that name. I'm familiar with it, but I didn't know where it was, and I sure didn't know how it connected to the Bible, but it does. Petra is another city that has a great uh, history and uh, facets about it that I mentioned to you. Uh, the, the whole territory of Edom was known for its red sandstone, and the Edomites would build from that and would carve into that and just made dramatic uh, 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 images uh, and uh, accomplishments using that red sandstone, that colorful stone. Petra was kind of covered over over the centuries, but in recent years, archaeology has uncovered it. We've discovered a lot of that. And back in the 80s, I'm not sure how far back, but at least in the 80s and from there forward, a movie, a series of movies came out involving a man named Indiana Jones. You say, oh yeah, how does that fit into the Bible? Well, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I think is the third in that series. I'm not a fan of, of that. I hadn't been a follower of that, so I'm not sure. You may know better than I. But I think there was a, one of the titles, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Much of the scenery in that movie was around the city of Petra and the territory of Edom. And you may say, I never heard of that place, didn't know anything about it. Now I find out I've seen it with my own eyes when I watched the Indiana Jones movies. So because of its uh, dramatic color, because of the architecture and the sculpture, there in that area that's been unearthed, it became the perfect place for the back, background setting uh, and the visual images that would be portrayed there in the story of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If Pastor Davin, when he comes back, asks you, did you learn anything from Obadiah? Don't tell him you learned about Indiana Jones, okay? He'll never figure that out, okay? So those are some things you... Uh, didn't know you knew about Obadiah and Edom. And then, of course, I've already mentioned the relationship between Jacob and Esau, 
And now these are their descendants. The Hebrews, the descendants of Jacob or Israel, and uh, the Edomites, the descendants of uh, Esau. Conflict all throughout the ages. The book of Genesis tells us that Esau is Edom. So we even get that connection, that uh, vital information in the book of Genesis. Do your Bible study, you'll find that. And of course, that becomes a nation, becomes a tribe or a nation of people, uh, the Edomites. Conflict between Edom and the Israelites is recorded throughout uh, the Bible, the Old Testament. At least eight different times the Edomites are mentioned as being a part of some kind of harassment, some kind of attack, some kind of uh, troublemaking against the Israelite people. It went on over and over and over again. You'll find it at least eight times. One of the first that you may remember is in the book of Numbers. Moses is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt for 40 years through the wilderness till they get to the promised land. In that journey, when they come to the border of Edom, they need to pass through, and the ruler of Edom says, no, you're not passing through. And Moses asks again, he says, no, you're not passing through. And Moses comes back and says, we won't bother your crops. We won't bother your cattle. We won't uh, remove your water or, or, or use up all of your water. We won't harm you in any way. We just need to pass through. And the ruler of Edom said, no. So that's one biblical illustration. You'll find others where David had to take his army against the Edomites. His son Solomon had to take his army against the Edomites. And at least seven or eight times in the Old Testament, you find them constantly a thorn in the flesh against God's people. Uh, and uh, uh, that tension uh, and the way they treated God's people, like I say, either personally involved, aggressively involved, or just sitting back and gloating at what was happening to the nation of Israel over the centuries, God finally had enough and said, you're going to be punished and judged for that. I want to read to you uh, something from a man named Dr. Kyle Yates. He was a seminary professor in Louisville. But his book was my textbook at Sanford University. And he says a few words about the relationship between Jacob and Esau, which helps us understand the relationship between the Israelites and the Edomites. And let me just read that to you. Since the day when Jacob, by cunning, became a possessor of his brother's birthright, the children of Esau and the children of Jacob have been on bad terms. Family feuds are long and bitter and tragic. Moreover, between the Edomites and the Hebrews, there was a fundamental difference in genus and character. The general characteristics of Esau and Jacob ran in their blood. So those two brothers with the character they displayed early in the book of Genesis, the early in the Old Testament, was passed on to the next generation, the next and the next, all the way down through several centuries to the time uh, we come to today. Now listen to this description. The Edomites, like their father Esau, were fleshly-minded people having no appreciation of the unseen. And I pause there just to remind us, none of us have seen God, have we? We don't have an, an unknown God, but we do have an unseen God. But the Edomites, according to uh, the writer here, says they had no appreciation for the unseen. That kind of tells you just a bordering on atheism and total rejection of God. And they had no dreams for the future, no appreciation for the unseen. They lived for the moment, for food, for spoil, and vengeance. They had no national conscience or ideals. 
And then I think this is significant. You'll notice in the Old Testament, there's never a mention of the gods of the Edomites. How often were the Israelites tempted by the gods of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Philistines? Constantly the uh, Jewish people, God's, God's people were tempted and drawn away from their worship of God by these false gods of all of their neighbors, but you'll never find them being drawn away to the gods of the Edomites. That tells you they either had no God or their gods were so insignificant that they made no difference in their way of life. And that leads us to understand why God would come to the place where he finally says, that's enough and uh, you're going to be destroyed and annihilated. You have uh, lived a flesh-centered, self-centered, prideful life for all these years and now it's time for God's justice and God's judgment in your lives. The other thing I, I want you to be sure and understand is that the uh, Edomites uh, constantly took advantage of the opportunities they had to be a thorn in the flesh, troublemakers for the nation of Israel. And God said, that's enough. I'm going to judge the Edomites. But at the same time he judged the Edomites, he was blessing his people. He was freeing his people. He was removing that thorn in the flesh from his people. And we need to understand how, how that works then and how that works in our lives today as well. God's judgment may fall and it's painful to those upon whom it falls, the ones who deserve it. But for those who love him and serve him, God's judgment and justice sets us free and restores us and uh, delivers us from that which the enemy may have been bringing into our life. With that said, I want to read to you yet just one other word. Some of you remember I'm privileged to be given a uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon study Bible and at the place of Obadiah, here's a paragraph from Charles Spurgeon himself. If you want to tell the pastor you heard about Charles Spurgeon today, that's okay, all right? Just, just not Indiana Jones. This is, this is that idea that I've just been trying to say. When God comes to punish his enemies, he also comes to bless his friends. When Pharaoh is overthrown in the Red Sea, it is so that Israel may pass on to Canaan. What destroyed Pharaoh and his army set the children of Israel free to move to the promised land. When Amalek is overcome, it is that Israel may be at peace. There is a black cloud as well as a silvery rain. The acceptable year of the Lord is the day of the vengeance of our God. And he goes on to say that in uh, one of the Psalms, the Psalm begins to talk about uh, God's condemnation, but also God's mercy in the same phrase, in the same breath. And you think to yourself, well, those two don't go together. But they do in God's economy of things. When God comes to judge, it's destruction for those who have opposed him. But at the same time, it becomes God's deliverance and God's blessing for those who love him and have been faithful to him and followed him. I'll remind us today also, the father of the Jewish nation, the Hebrew children, the Israelites, the sons of Jacob, Jacob wasn't perfect. His descendants weren't perfect. But they continued to follow God, and when they got away from God, to come back to God and continue to make God the center of their life and the center of the direction of their life. The Edomites never acknowledged God, never uh, turned back to God. With every opportunity from the time of Esau all the way down through all those generations to where we come now, 
the uh, Edomites never made that decision, that determination for themselves, and as a result, they experienced the judgment and the justice of God. But at the same time that they were destroyed, it set the children of Israel free. And we need to understand that today to try to understand this passage of Scripture. Let me just quickly give you a comment or two about the entire book of Obadiah, 21 verses. You may want to make a note of these, and you can go back and look at it for yourself. Verse 1 identifies Obadiah as the messenger, as the preacher, as the prophet, and said he's been called by the Lord God. Now, a little later on that verse, it just says the Lord. The reason there's two different statements there are, are uh, names for God there is because it, in the Hebrew language, the two names for God are there. The Lord God is the Hebrew word Adonai which speaks of God as the sovereign God, the one who's in charge, the supreme ruler of everything. So the supreme God, Adonai, Lord God, there in verse 1, is the one who spoke to Obadiah, gave him his message, and said, now go and declare that message. A little later in that verse, and several more times in the book of Obadiah, it doesn't say Lord God anymore. It's not a translation of, of uh, Adonai. It's a translation of Jehovah. The rest of the time, it's just the Lord, which is the translation for uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. And that uh, uh, emphasis, that name for God, depicts God as the self-existent one. Now, I don't really know that there's much difference between the sovereign God and the self-existent God. They kind of go together. They kind of speak of his supremacy, his absolute uh, 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 position above all others and above all things and in charge of everything. But that's the way the book of Obadiah begins with the name of the sovereign God and the name of the self-existent God. Throughout the uh, 21 verses, you'll find the name Lord again, and it's always a translation of Jehovah or Yahweh. So the first verse introduces us to the speaker and to his call and the message that he was to deliver. Verses two through nine describe the kind of judgment that's gonna come on Edom uh, and anyone who would be as guilty as they were of the sins they were guilty of. It's the description of the judgment, verses 2 through 9. Verses 10 through 14 list the sins. God's never going to call a person into court and condemn them to uh, annihilation, condemn them to total uh, removal from existence without bringing a case against them. And so in verses 10 through 14, he lists the sins that the nation of uh, Edom was guilty of against him and against his people. In essence, one word you'll find in the King James Version and probably in other versions as well, something similar to it, their sin was pride and arrogance and self-confidence. And as we've just uh, heard just a moment ago, that idea that if there is a God, we don't need him. We can do this on our own. We're going to do it our own way and we can do it ourselves and we don't need God. That essentially is what God condemns them for. And finally, at this point, he brings them under his judgment and his condemnation. With that said, uh, the remaining verses of Obadiah, verses 15 and 16, kind of restate the judgment that's coming. And in verse 15, you'll find the phrase, the day of the Lord. We don't have time to pursue that, but you need to make a note of that phrase, the day of the Lord. The pastor mentioned it last week in Amos. It's found in almost all of the major and the minor prophets. It's alluded to throughout the Old Testament and it continues to be repeated and referred to throughout the New Testament. What is the day of the Lord? Sometimes it's simply called the day. 
Sometimes it's called the day of God's justice or the day of God's wrath. But it always refers to some point, some place, some uh, position out there in the future when God is going to act as sovereign God, as the self-existent one, and to do what has to be done against the enemy, but also for his people. You'll notice there in verse 15, Obadiah repeats that same phrase that you'll hear, as I say, throughout the entire Bible. And one of the most uh, familiar places in the entire Bible of that phrase, of that idea of the day of the Lord is in the book of Revelation toward the end where it talks about the fact that God's finally had it with the entire creation and his just, justice and judgment's coming upon all. And then that day of the Lord, a savior is coming from heaven and that savior is going to conquer all the enemies. There'll be no more rebellion. There'll be no more uh, sinful ways. There may be those who try to sin, but that sin will be immediately put down. And in that day of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ will reign supreme and in charge and demonstrate and prove for a thousand years that God's way is right, God's way is best, that God's way works. And those who've rejected it down through the years will be proven wrong. And those who've trusted him and obeyed him and served him and come back to him down through the years will be proven right and rewarded. I like to express it this way. The day of the Lord is the day when Satan and all associated with him will be exposed for who they really are and expelled forever. And those who've trusted God and loved God and followed God will be raptured and rewarded for their faithfulness in God and because of the love and the goodness of God. So, book of Obadiah, 21 verses. First verse introduces us to the speaker. Uh, the next several verses describe the uh, judgment that's coming. The next few verses describe the reason for the judgment. Verses 15 and 16 speak of the day of the Lord and kind of summarize that judgment that's coming again. And then the verses 17 through 21 begin to look at God's people and what they're going through at the present time, but what God is going to do to re redeem them and to rescue them and to deliver them from that and what he's going to do to their enemies. So you do your own study in the book of uh, Obadiah and look at it under that kind of a breakdown. Verse 1, verses 2 through 9 verses 10 through 14, verses 15 to 16, and then the final verses, 17 through 21. And I think you'll get the picture and the image. And if you'll look at your Bible, I just want you to notice verse uh, 21, the very last uh, statement, the very last phrase. The book of Obadiah is filled with condemnation and wrath and judgment and annihilation upon the children of uh, Esau, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites for their evil, but the very last phrase of the book, the very last phrase of verse 21 says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You've heard the old phrase, I read the end of the book and we win. Well, that's exactly what Obadiah is telling us here. When it's all said and done, sovereign God, self-existent God is going to have his way in the world, in the lives of people with this nation, ultimately with all nations and uh, when it's all said and done, the kingdom will belong to God and we will live and enjoy the blessings, the benefit of his kingdom, not only for a thousand years at the end of this earthly age, but throughout all eternity in a place called heaven. That's an encouraging word, I think, uh, for all of us today. Well, what should we take away from Obadiah? How's he going to help me and help you today? First of all, you need to study the book of Obadiah and see what sins that God will destroy a nation for. And it may say something to the United States of America today and to us as we live in America and as us as we vote in America and us as we communicate with our 
uh, local and state and national legislators and let them know what's right and what's wrong and what we expect of them. Uh, aware with our own understanding that the things that this nation was guilty of, when our nation becomes guilty of those same things, and God hates it just as much then, uh, now, uh, now as he did then. Well, let's take it and make it a little more personal. It's not just the sins of Edom, a nation, not just the sins of the whole millions of Americans today, but what about individuals who are proud? What about individuals who live as if God doesn't exist, as if they don't need God, as if they can do things their own way and everything's going to be all right? If God hated it then, he hates it now. If God destroyed it then, he'll hate it and destroy it today as well. So that's one thing we can take from it. God has not changed. His word has not changed. His opinion of evil has not changed. And what those Edomites were guilty of when we're guilty of them today, the same thing can happen. Uh, what else can we take from Obadiah? There's a lot of things we don't know about Obadiah. I've mentioned to you a few things that you might have known that you didn't know you knew. A lot of things we don't know. We don't know where he came from what particular tribe or what particular kingdom of Israel he was a part of. We don't know that. don't know anything about his family. We don't know if he had any other occupation. Last week, Amos was a farmer, you heard our pastor say, but then God called him from the farm to go and preach and con conclude a ministry and then probably go back to the farm. We don't know that happened with Obadiah. We don't know what his trade was or what he was doing before God called him. We just know God called him, gave him this message, and he went and delivered it. And then uh, God... Uh, Honored his word. God honored the preaching of his prophet in the nation of Edom was judged and destroyed. What can we take away from this today? Obadiah had to declare God's truth against God's enemies. But as I've already indicated, he also, in declaring his judgment against the enemies, declared God's blessing upon his own children. That's verses 17 through 21 as well. We read verse 18, and there you saw the descendants of Jacob mentioned, God's people. Not just the Jewish people, but it would include all of us today, God's people today. How the principle is that God will uh, take care of his people, and the end result is his people are going to come out on the victory side, on the winning side in every situation uh, and in every circumstance. What I believe about Obadiah is this. God gave him his message, just a short message of 21 verses. I think probably wherever he came from in Israel, he went down into Edom and he preached this message. Maybe in Basra, Petra, or, or wherever, or maybe throughout the land. I don't imagine he was welcome. I don't imagine his message was well received or liked. But he had to go and preach that message, and he did. My personal belief also is we don't know when Obadiah served he could have preached his message as early as the 800s B.C. or as late as the 500s B.C., somewhere in that vast period of time. We just don't know. I personally believe he preached it in the uh, time after the fall of the northern kingdom. Uh, the pastor talked about that last week when Assyria came in and took the 10 northern tribes captive. Then about 150 years later, the Babylonians would come in and take the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, away into captivity as well. I personally believe that's when Obadiah served. I believe during that period of time he went and preached to the Edomites that their day of judgment was coming. But I also believe this. He came back, I believe, to the city of Jerusalem. 
that was in shambles. The temple was destroyed. The walls were down. The smoke of the fires of destruction was still hanging over the city and, and uh, boiling up throughout the city. Multitudes of the Jewish people have been carried away to Babylon into captivity and to other places of captivity. A little handful had been left behind. And can you imagine how devastated they must have felt? But then all of a sudden, this prophet Obadiah shows up and begins to preach. He preaches against their enemies. They're glad to hear that. But then he also begins to preach how Judah is going to be raised back up from their devastation and used to bring judgment not only on the Edomites but on all nations. Those who've been sent away into captivity are going to be brought back and God is going to restore his nation. Obadiah was privileged to give that message not only of judgment to one group but the same message is a message of hope, restoration, encouragement to the other group. What does all that mean for us today? Somebody here in this room or somebody by live stream, maybe more than one, is just about like the Jewish people after the Babylonians destroyed the city and destroyed the kingdom. Your life is in shambles. It's a wreck. Nothing but rubble and smoke. Nothing to look forward to. Nothing to build back with. Your life is just at, at, at a place where you can't see how to move forward. But the message of Obadiah is for you today just as much as, much as it was for those people in the 5th century B.C. Your God is a sovereign God. Your God is a self-existent God. And your God is a loving God and he loves you. And he knows where you are. And he knows how you're hurting. And he knows how helpless you feel. And he's ready and capable to come in and defeat your enemies, but also restore you to where you need to be and where you belong. I think that's a message we all need to take with us today. And that's what Obadiah communicates to us today. He condemned a godless nation, but at the same time he gave hope and encouragement to a nation who remained the children of God and the family of God. You and I today are the family of God, the children of God. And God's message to you today is no matter what your life is like, what your world is like, literally the, the whole world, the mess that we're in today, doesn't matter. He's sovereign. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not stressed. He's fully capable of responding to rescue us and deliver us. Before we go today, I need to remind you, God's able to do that because not only Obadiah, but every other prophet and king and, and leader, hero in the Old Testament did the same thing that Obadiah did. They looked forward. Some of God's justice is happening immediately, but the ultimate event of God's justice is coming out there in the future. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God had said when the devil raised his head, interfered in the human race and caused man to fall into sin, God said to that serpent representing Satan, you're going to bruise the heel of that man who's coming, the seed of the woman that's coming out there in the future. But he's going to crush your head. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, all the way through the Old Testament, those people look forward to somebody who's coming that's going to fulfill God's plan and purpose and make God's blessings available to all who will have it. And of course, that one came. The pastor said last week, Amos preached, Obadiah preached, Jonah preached, all these other minor prophets preached right up till Malachi preached. And then for 400 years, silence. 
until after the end of those 400 years when the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John began to record it. A man named John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, burst forth onto the scene with the message, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does God accomplish His purpose? He has done it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you think about our story today, our, our image today of Obadiah and the Israelite people and the Edomite people, they're basically just two ways to go in life. You either go like Jacob and you trust God the best you know how. You stumble, you fall, you mess up, but you come back and God forgives you and you keep on going with him because you know he's the way. Or you're like Esau and you say, I don't need him. I can do it on my own and I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. That's the only two ways life can be. And that man who was born, that person who came 2,000 years ago, that the Old Testament people look forward to, Jesus, it becomes the dividing line in history, the dividing line in this room today. You either trust him and follow him and receive his hope and his victory, or you reject him. And all along the way, you experience his wrath and his condemnation and his judgment and ultimately his separation in the final and the eternal future that's out there before all of us. So where we are today is the question is what would you do with Jesus? Those Old Testament saints looked forward to him and he came. The New Testament saints, the gospels and the epistle writers and all those in the New Testament experienced him and saw him and heard him and received from him. And then he died on a cross and he was buried and he rose again, and then he ascended back to the Father with the promise, I'm coming again. Now, ever since that time, you and I look back upon him, but it's still all sinners in the one that the Old Testament looked forward to, that the New Testament people experienced, and that since that time we've been looking back upon, it centers in that one person, the dividing line of history, the dividing line of humanity, Jesus Christ. As we look back upon what Jesus did, we realize he conquered Satan at the cross. And the resurrection declares Jesus Christ is victorious. And Jesus Christ's word is true. And his promise is ours if we will receive it. So today, I bring you the message of an Old Testament minor prophet. The shortest book in the Bible. Probably not the shortest sermon you ever heard, which you thought you'd get, but you didn't. But even though it's not the shortest sermon you ever heard, it's a message of hope. Judgment if you walk away from God's plan and God's purpose revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, or it's a message of hope and joy and victory if you're trusting him, walking with him, following him, and obeying him in every area of your life. I invite you today to consider who you are and where you are and where you stand in this message, in this separation that Obadiah presents to us. Somebody here today needs to trust Jesus as your personal savior. You need to take a stand and say, I'm coming away from that way that walks away from him and I'm coming to him and I want to walk with him for the rest of my life. We invite you to do that. Some of us need to come to this altar, maybe deal with some of those sins that God's spoken to us about through his word and in our heart and just confess and repent and get things right. Some of us perhaps need to join our church today, move your membership, your letter here. And we're not just interested in having you on the roll, but we're interested in having you as a participant with us in the mission God has for First Baptist Pella. And if he's calling you and inviting you to do that today, then we invite you in these next few moments to come forward and respond with that transfer of church membership. Most important decision of all would be what would you do with Jesus Christ today? Obadiah, 
took a stand for God knowing that one day God was going to complete his plan in a person that was coming. The seed of a woman born in Bethlehem, his name was Jesus Christ. You and I look back and say, Jesus finished it. On the cross he declared, it's finished, it's complete, it's settled, it's available. And now you and I have to decide, what will we do with Jesus? So in these next few moments, I invite you to respond. I'll be standing here at the front. Brother Matt's here. He'll be standing at the front. If you need to come and pray, if you need to come and share a public decision, we invite you to do that. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. We've felt it as a sharp sword. We've also experienced it, Lord, as a word of hope, a word of life, a word of victory. So we give you thanks. And now we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to respond to your word as you've spoken to our hearts. May this room be filled with freedom for folks to do what they need to do publicly, gladly to respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.